Hi everybody and thanks for tuning in. Before we start talking about the future of conservation, let's talk about the present. Now being in the midst of a global pandemic, this podcast is coming to you from our respective home offices entirely via an online platform, so we apologize for any minor technical glitches or slight sound issues. Now let's get the show on the road, metaphorically speaking of course. Hello everybody and welcome to a very special episode of the ZSL Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Böhm, Research Fellow here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology and today we are discussing the future of conservation. What is the future of conservation? What does it look like? Now conservation has never been more important given the alarming rate at which biodiversity loss continues. But much like biodiversity, the conservation movement is highly diverse with ideas about how we can best achieve biodiversity conservation. And we have discussed many of these in previous podcast episodes. For example, conservation through protected areas, or through incorporating traditional knowledge and human development, or conservation action based on quantitative scientific evidence. Others may bank on financial systems which incorporate positive biodiversity outcomes, like biodiversity impact bonds, for example. And what new perspectives on conservation does the coronavirus pandemic provide us with, or the Black Lives Matter movement? So today we are super excited to have with us Chris Sandbrook from the University of Cambridge. Chris is a conservation social scientist with a diverse research interest around a central theme of biodiversity conservation and its relationship with society. He is also the lead author of a study which surveyed the perspectives of nearly 10,000 conservationists from around the world, which has shed light on the different perspectives on the future of conservation. But before we get onto this truly enormous topic, it's time to introduce my co-hosts, Helen Müller, Yara Shannon-Farporn and Thalassa Hamilton. Helen, Yara and Thali are PhD students on the London NERC DTP programme and are partly based at ZSL's Institute of Zoology. And, to be honest, are the brains behind the future of conservation idea for this podcast. I'm just coming along for the ride. So Helen, in one sentence, what's your PhD research about? Well, very broadly, my PhD is trying to understand whether trophy hunting is an effective conservation tool. And I'm doing this by trying to understand what happened to communities and to ecosystems when hunting was banned in Botswana for five years. Wow, sounds awesome. Yara, what's your PhD about? So my PhD also, it's looking at how to consider benefits for both people and nature in forest restoration planning for Brazil's Atlantic forest. So I'm looking at how to consider co-benefits and also what the role of agroforestry and smallholder farmers might be within these larger forest restoration plans for this region. Excellent. And last but by no means least, Thali, <laughs> what's your PhD about? Mine is two sentences. It's fine. I'll just edit one out. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm Thali and I'm interested in how we make sustainable and effective decisions in conservation, um, which is often a complex process due to the mix of all the biological, cultural, economic values present and also the inherent uncertainty of working with small populations. Um, my PhD is specifically using um, a values-led decision-making process called structured decision-making to help stakeholders decide how to manage and recover a population of a very rare seabird in New Zealand called Taraiti, or New Zealand fairy tern. 
Wow, that's topics as diverse as the views on the future of conservation, no doubt. Now to get the gender balance on this panel, right, let's bring in Chris Sandbrook. So Chris, you describe yourself as a conservation social scientist. Now for your paper, you decided to survey the perspectives of nearly 10,000 conservationists from across the globe, which sounds like A, a lot of work and B, also makes you a really social conservation scientist. Uh, where did the idea for this survey come from? Uh, well, the idea came from several years of work, which I've been doing with collaborators on this project, which started off trying to understand what the views of conservationists might be on some of the big topics being discussed in the literature. And we started off doing very small scale surveys, a kind of qualitative work initially. And then, um, you know, we decided it would be interesting to try and see whether what we were finding in that small scale work would hold if we applied it to a much larger sample. So we decided to design a, a global survey to put out there and see what kind of results we would get back. And Chris, what kind of results did you find from the survey? So tell us a bit about what the results were, what was surprising to you, perhaps, or what was most interesting from, from the results? Okay, thanks. Yeah, so when we launched the survey, my sort of secret hope was that we might get maybe a couple of thousand people responding to it. And in the end, we've, we've had over 15,000 people who've taken the survey from all over the world. So we were, we were really blown away by the level of response that we got. And it's enabled us to do some analysis that we perhaps didn't initially think would be possible. So yeah, we, we've been able to establish that there are really diverse views held on conservation topics around the world, and that crucially, they don't fall into very clearly defined kind of camps or grouping. So if you read the literature over the last 10 years or so, you might be forgiven for thinking that there are these very distinct groups of people who think you know, one way and people who think another way and that conservationists can be sort of allocated to one or the other. And actually what you find is that the kind of views of the, the main um, population of people we, we surveyed are kind of in the middle. They're a kind of you know, wide ranging, but without those clear divisions between them. And we think that's really important because it kind of suggests that you know, the, the views of the people who've been writing the kind of editorials and think pieces in the journals are kind of picked out from rather extreme positions um, across the kind of broader range of perspectives that you find within the conservation community. And I don't think that's particularly surprising. I mean, in, in a sense, it's a bit like saying, you know, if you had several different political parties competing in an election, you'd expect them to have quite polarised views, whereas the electorate as a whole may be sort of somewhere in the middle on average. But nonetheless, I think it's really important to demonstrate that perhaps as a conservation community, people aren't as divided as they maybe have been portrayed. But at the same time, we have managed to identify where there are specific topics where there is actually quite a lot of disagreement. And that's you know, been around things like whether it's acceptable to displace people from areas to make way for, for protected areas, um, the role of market based and kind of economic instruments in conservation. And these are topics which we I guess we've known for quite a long time that they are very divisive and controversial. But it's been really useful to have that brought out more clearly from this this really large global data set. The survey is still online and I, I know for certain that people are still filling it in because prepping for this podcast I did. Uh, we've all taken it, right? Yeah. Yeah, a few times. A few times even. So I've only taken it once and I'm still trying to make sense of where I am. But it feels like I am one of those people who are somewhere slap bam in the middle, sitting on the fence as usual, I suppose. How about you guys? I seem to be sort of fall, fall under the broad pattern of the very new conservationist approach. So it's sort of very in favour of people-centred conservation, but also quite in favour of market-based approaches as well, with less and sort of varying, as I also have taken it several times, varying degrees of um, input from science. 
I think, depending on the mood that I'm in and um, what I consider science to be. That's interesting. So how does mood influence the survey? (laughs) (laughs) What is science? I think it's really interesting, actually, to take this survey as you, I mean, not that my career is super long, but as you go through different stages in working in conservation. So I took the survey for the first time ages ago, maybe in 2016 or something like that. And I was working on sort of traditional scientists or science-based approaches to conservation, sort of using GIS and using data and using protected areas to plan conservation and not really thinking about the social context at all. And when I took the survey then, my results were very much in favour of science-led ecocentrism and very much not in favour of people-centred conservation because I didn't know what it was. And then now that I'm doing my PhD um, jointly with the anthropology department at UCL, I've obviously been exposed a lot more to that literature and that side of conservation and my results have changed to be sort of in the middle but definitely not favouring science-led ecocentrism anymore. So I think that's really interesting how over time the survey also helps you understand your own views and how your own views on conservation have changed because mine definitely has. Absolutely, I have a similar experience. I feel like up until very recently, I was very um, focused on um, the science and evidence-based conservation. Science was like the goal, that was like the golden thing that you wanted. And same with you, I didn't recognise the people-sided stuff nearly as much. Whereas now working in New Zealand and working with Matoranga Māori and like indigenous culture has really challenged my deeply ingrained perceptions of what conservation is. And I've learned so much and I've moved now into a more, yeah, I've become more people-centered and realized that biological science is not the, not always the answer. One of the things that we're now trying to do actually is, is look at how people's responses to the survey do change over time. So it's really fascinating to hear you all kind of reflecting on that in your own experience. So um, one of the uh, main collaborators on this project is Aidan Keane at Edinburgh, and he has a PhD student there now, Helena Slater, who's trying to look at the impact of, for example, pre and post doing a course at, at a university and how that might shape people's views over time, which is really fascinating. The other thing is just picking up on what Tali was saying there about working with, you know, with Indigenous perspectives, as I think it's really important that we acknowledge as as I and that my co-authors on this work do, that the survey is designed based on a debate that was very much taking place in a kind of Western English language, fairly elite kind of context. So the questions are designed around what was being discussed within you know, what we've identified as the new conservation debates in the literature. And that is not by any means a kind of full, you know, exhaustive list of all the topics that matter in conservation and from different people's perspectives. So one of the things that we're well, firstly aware of as a limitation, but secondly, looking at as an opportunity to kind of progress this work in the future is how to bring in those different worldviews and perspectives that are not present within the survey and definitely to not inadvertently give people the impression that we're portraying this as a kind of comprehensive assessment of every possible conservation viewpoint which could be out there. To do that, yeah. are you planning on um, working with a broader range of people on the project just to try and get a better handle of how to incorporate different views? I guess we've been trying to think that through in various different ways. So one is trying to expand the survey to be available in different languages. So we've we've launched it now in several other languages. I'm working with a PhD student, Rogelio Luque Lora, who, who's one of the co-authors on the original paper. And he's been working in Chile, looking at place-based environmental values, particularly with indigenous groups in southern Chile, and then not actually using the survey as such, but trying to explore how some of the same sorts of issues um, are reflected in the kind of life worlds of the people that he's working with. 
you know, we haven't as yet brought new people into the core research team, but that's definitely something that we're also you know, interested to explore because we're very much aware that the group of researchers who've been involved in this project are all white Europeans um, of very much privileged backgrounds. So it's something that we, you know, we're, we're well aware of and want to try and do more with in the future. I suppose all of us in conservation have probably started out taking a course in conservation biology. I mean, now I feel really old saying this, which I suppose is how conservation started out being kind of quite science based. And I think just recently there was a shift of like, no, this is conservation science and brings in social science and perspectives from a wide variety of people as well, because it's really about what does conservation mean to people? Yeah, I think that's a sort of ongoing evolutionary process, because, I mean, you could point to literature that was published several decades ago, which made that argument. And, you know, that has been a sort of very slow moving, but I think gradually moving in the right direction process that rather than the sort of automatic assumption or starting point being one of coming from a very conservation biology, conservation science paradigm, we're, we're gradually moving towards people, first of all, acknowledging the importance of social and political issues in conservation and then actually gaining the skills to understand the, the sort of theoretical and methodological standpoints that that brings with it. And, you know, the, the ultimate goal that I would like to see certainly is to have many more people coming into conservation who have either just a different disciplinary background or a more inter or transdisciplinary background from the beginning. So that rather than doing what I did in my career, which was, you know, jump out of a master's and an undergraduate degree in very much sort of ecology and conservation science, suddenly jump into anthropology and, and have to do a lot of scrambling to catch up. I would have much preferred that to happen as an 18 year old coming into an undergraduate program and, and you know, for people in conservation to learn something about society and politics and economics and indeed philosophy, which currently doesn't tend to happen. And I think really has continued to hamper the way in which conservation has you know, managed to make progress. And in the Masters in Conservation Leadership, which I direct at the University of Cambridge, you know, we, we are very open-minded about who we admit to the programme in terms of their disciplinary background. So we've had lots of students who have not got that kind of core conservation ecology training. And they're often quite you know, sort of bashful about that and think they want to sort of fill in those gaps. And we've, you know, we've just tried to encourage them to sort of recognise that actually they could see themselves as kind of trailblazers in a, a kind of new way of thinking about conservation, where it's not absolutely necessary that you understand the behavioural ecology of ants. You know, it's, it's yeah. more, more important that you understand people because that's what conservation is all about. 100%. I suppose from your survey, there were a few things like these different kind of polarizing issues that came out of it. One of them I find really quite interesting is conservation and capitalism, which probably sounds like a paradox to many. But of course, there's now things like conservation impact bonds and so on that people are starting to develop. Why do you think this is one of these controversial polarizing issues? I mean, we live in a capitalist world, so it probably shouldn't be. Okay, there's a lot to unpack in your question there. One of the reasons why I think it is so controversial is because a lot of people think that the capitalist political economy within which we're living is fundamentally unsustainable, almost hardwired to produce bad outcomes for ecology and for people. And so they think that we need some kind of more fundamental transformative change to that system. And so then I think you, you can come up, you, know, you have people who are more reformists who think that we need to try and you know, tweak the system that we have. And that's where the kind of ideas like green economy and maybe you know, payments for ecosystem services and so on come forward. And then there are others who say, no, no, that's just um, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not going to achieve the longer term goals that we have. And indeed, it might be evidence of the conservation movement being kind of co-opted by corporate power as a way of averting real change. So then those two different points of view are very difficult to reconcile with each other. So I think people feel very strongly about that one way or the other. 
to compare that relative to other areas of our findings, I mean, the other two major dimensions of conservation thinking that we identified, people-centred conservation and science-led ecocentrism, I think pretty much everyone working in conservation will agree and does agree, as the evidence of our results shows. They do agree with those ideas on some underlying level. Pretty much everyone thinks that people-centred conservation is a good idea. It's just a question of how much, how strongly they agree with that. So some people think it's a little bit important and some people think it's very important, but you really struggle to find anyone in conservation who thinks that, you know, working with people or benefiting people is just outright terrible idea and should be avoided at all costs. And in contrast, the the conservation and business, I mean, there are people who just genuinely think it's a terrible idea. And then on the other hand, there are those who think it's a fantastic idea. I think that that gives you this kind of broader level of disagreement with that particular topic. Do you think that the people that are really against the capitalism models, do you think that's based on fear? Is there like a fear of something there? Well, I suppose a fear of the demise of people and nature in the sense that I think people, you know, really don't think it's a model that's working. And so, you know, they are convinced that we need a, a kind of more radical alternative. Chris, what do you think the results mean for the way we work in partnerships globally? And what do you think the main challenges are of including more voices from other sectors into conservation Okay, I mean, I think in terms of including more voices into conservation from other sectors, I think it's really helpful to understand kind of where the points of agreement and disagreement actually seem to be within the conservation movement. And that perhaps helps people to identify where they might find it easier to collaborate with other sectors that perhaps hold different perspectives or where there might be points of difference, which are unlikely to be things that can be overcome. And we've we've developed a, a tool based on the survey called GoFox, which is specifically designed to explore differences in opinion within a defined group of people. So, you know, you can do that either with a group of students or you can perhaps do it with a a kind of team of people who are collaborating or considering working with each other from maybe different backgrounds or sectors and use that as a way to zero in on where as a group you tend to agree with each other and where you don't, which we, you know, we've been finding can be quite a useful starting point. We've all been involved probably in large kind of collaborative projects with people from different organisations, including civil society or the private sector, and using this as a way to work out where you're on the same page and where you aren't. Yeah, that sounds interesting. And then thinking about conservation more generally, what would you say that we're doing well at? And where would you think could be the biggest areas that we could do for improvements? That's such a massive question. I think the conservation sector has, I mean, there's plenty of evidence that without the work that's gone into conservation so far, you know, things would probably be worse for many species and ecosystems. So I think, you know, there's there's some grounds for being reasonably happy with some of the impact that conservation has had. But I think there's an enormous amount that the conservation system could do better. I mean, I, I would like to see a much greater focus on on environmental justice and um, incorporating perspectives of different people in a more meaningful way. The conservation sector, at least as we formally understand it in countries like the UK, has got a very elite colonial history. And we're still we carry that with us to this day. You know, that, that's not something from the past. It's, it's with us now. And I think we can see that has been really brought to the fore in debates around Black Lives Matter and thinking about you know, decolonizing conservation, decolonizing our curriculums. So I think conservation has an enormous way to go in that sense. I also think it's really important as we have that debate that we recognise that what we're calling conservation is actually just one way of thinking about conservation. You know, I think we tend to have in mind a very formalised Western-led system which has self-defined as conservation for the last century or so. But of course, there's a lot of work on 
you know, environmentalisms of the poor, for example, Martinez Allier's work on that term. And just there are lots of people around the world who might not call themselves a conservationist, but who have beliefs and practices which are totally consistent with conservation as, as they might understand it. So it's also, I mean, it's even potentially slightly imperial for us to kind of just think, oh, you know, how should conservation change? Well, we, maybe we need to recognise that we're not the only game in town when it comes to, to so-called conservation as part of that process. Following on from that, given that a large proportion of conservation funding does come from the Western world, particularly with a focus on like large charismatic mammals, how do you think that conservation can better incorporate power dynamics between different stakeholders in conservation? That's, again, a really massively important question. And I think in the specific context of things like you know, the way in which conservation is practiced in sub-Saharan Africa, where you're working, Helen, with tools like trophy hunting, when you listen to the perspectives that one tends to hear coming from people from those regions, they're often on the whole quite supportive of those kinds of approaches, at least as I can see it. The statement that came from sub-Saharan African nations at the CITES meeting last year, you know, was a really interesting example of that. And a sense mm -hmm. that the kind of views of people in countries like the UK and the US, which have, you know, maybe have moved in a very protectionist kind of welfare agenda backed point of view on avoiding all harm to non-human life people speaking in that statement feel that those views are being forced upon them, preventing them from using and interacting with wildlife in a way that they would see as totally appropriate. In a slightly sort of simplified way of thinking about it, I would like to see more decisions made locally and by the people who are living with the non-human life that we're interested in conserving, you know, as far as that's possible. But obviously, that isn't an easy thing to implement in practice. But I think, you know, making that a kind of starting point rather than just a sort of occasional add-on would be a really good way to see things moving forwards. Maybe I'll just add something which is that I think one of the challenges that I think the formal Western conservation movement faces is that where it finds itself in some cases being quite powerless. So feeling like, you know, how on earth are we going to change consumer behaviour? How on earth are we going to change the sort of juggernaut of, you know, overconsumption or whatever it might be? And therefore wants to use every possible tool to, you know, to advocate for change and, and to try and make things happen. But at the same time, we actually find ourselves in positions of real significant power for example, you know, if you're working in rural Uganda, where I did my PhD research, conservation organizations were rich, they were powerful, they had authority, and people living in the areas there were really deeply affected by conservationists and their decisions. And that's a strange sort of paradox that, you know, the, the people in head office might be feeling like theirs is a very minority view that nobody really seems to care about in the wider public, whereas out in the field, you're actually able to throw your weight around and make quite a big impact. And that, that requires some really important, you know, ethical consideration about making sure that when you do have power to make make a big difference that you use it you know in an appropriate way and, and don't just inadvertently cause a lot of harm. Do you think some of the big conservation NGOs are moving in that direction of being much more thoughtful about the impact and the power they hold in the places that they work? I think they're thinking about it. I couldn't say that I know enough about what all the big NGOs are doing to sort of give an informed answer to that question. All the big conservation NGOs pretty much have signed up to something called the Conservation Initiative on Human Rights. You know, that happened quite a long time ago now, and there's been concern that that hasn't really been followed through. One of the issues has been that a little piece of the organisation gets created to address those sorts of issues, but they're often themselves quite marginalised within the bureaucracy of a much larger organisation. So it's not really embedded and cutting right across the work of the whole organisation. And I suppose maybe it's that next stage that you know we might hope to see. And, and I think that the kind of recent events might help to precipitate some change in that way. And that's not only the Black Lives Matter and those protests, which are hugely important in this respect, but also coronavirus. You know, COVID-19 has kind of created maybe a temporarily a world in which conservation is being done much more locally. I think there's international travel has ceased. 
um, international flows of finance have been greatly reduced. And so perhaps we're needing to see more local leadership of conservation. And I wonder if that might become a, a longer term phenomenon rather than just a blip. You're preempting all of our questions. I like it. Sorry. <laughs> I liked what you were saying about the local conservation. And maybe there needs to be more of a focus on not coming in as highly skilled people and then leaving, but more of a focus on creating change. That doesn't mean that, you know, the funding ends, people leave and we've actually might have had a bad impact where we were trying to do good. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's, to me, the fundamental issue there is about building capacity for the long term. So that's something that we're trying to do with the masters, you know, build capacity of in-country conservationists who can take those leadership roles and, and carry forward conservation where they are in the longer term. And um, we bring people to, to Cambridge for a year to sort of interact with each other and, and with the Cambridge conservation community, which includes a lot of large NGOs as well as the university. But in doing so, I think I'm constantly kind of reminding the students that what we're not trying to do is to create replicates, you know, a kind of clones of a, a way of yes. doing conservation, which is represented by our community. We're, we're asking them to learn from it and to look at it, but to also critique it and to take things forward in their own way, which makes sense. These calls for like a fairer conservation sector have been around for so long and there's a massive movement happening right now on anti-racism and Black Lives Matter. And I know we've been talking about it a lot within ZSL as well, but I am interested in how we use that movement now to make real change in conservation, both in like how we conduct ourselves and in also in organisational structures. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. I think it's really important now to imagine what conservation might look like in 20 or 30 years time, you know, in a positive way and how international conservation organisations can kind of work towards that objective. And, and I would hope that that is no longer very centralised concentrations of people and people, resources and power in, in, you know, London, Cambridge, New York City, and then a lot of international travel backwards and forwards to the field. I would hope it's a much more decentralised system where perhaps there are still hubs where people come together to sort of exchange views and, and learn from each other. But maybe a lot of that will be online um, and that things are happening much more on the ground. It's going to be a slightly you know, long term process. And I think it's really important that there will still be a need for a global perspective and analysis and work that looks at how it's all adding up into the bigger picture. Because if you take a totally local view, you will inevitably miss some really important issues from a conservation perspective. I think that has to be the, the direction in which we're hoping to go. Well, so I guess this follows on a little bit from um, what you mentioned before about your own experience. It's a discussion that we've been having a lot as PhD students, definitely following that same track, where you have most of us coming from ecological or biological uh, sort of science backgrounds and increasingly realising how important people are in the conservation story. And I was just wondering, how do you think that we can sort of better integrate the ideas of people and nature being not necessarily one entity, but very important parts of the integrated system? Yeah, it's a really important point. And I mean, if it maybe illustrates how ingrained it is in Western philosophy to see people and nature as being separate. I mean, I try really hard to avoid saying that. And I caught myself earlier in this conversation saying people and nature. I mean, I, you know, it's really difficult to get away from. And when we asked people in the survey, you know, do you think people are part of nature? Almost everybody said, oh, yes, people and nature are, are not separate. And, and that's probably if there's one result in the survey that I don't really trust. It would be that, because I think if you if you ask people to explicitly answer a question about that, they'll sort of think, oh, no, no, of course, you know, people and nature are part of the same system. If you look at the things they say and the things they do, you know, in a normal kind of everyday context, their actions and words will, I think, give away the fact that really we do tend to think of these things as being quite separate. I mean, I like the idea of thinking of even human bodies are multi-species assemblages, you know, we're carrying around with us 
all kinds of other other species. So, you know, what makes us human is not just human DNA and material, but it's the bodies of multiple different organisms. So I, I think that's going to be fundamental to finding a kind of more um, harmonious way through conservation in the future is to get over this division between people and nature. And I think you can see how that plays out in some of these big global debates about what we should do with protected areas. For example, you know, I feel like the ideas like um, nature needs half, just the way that's phrased, you know, it's kind of completely explicit almost within the statement is that people are separate from nature and nature needs its half and people need our half. And um, even leaving aside the kind of rights or wrongs of the actual policy recommendations, I think just the very discursive framing of that is really unhelpful. You know, I think we've got to be able to sort of think of the earth as a single integrated system, albeit with a lot of diversity and how it works in different places. And this kind of separating mindset is not, I don't think, very useful one. Nature needs half makes a very much us versus it narrative. It's very polarizing in itself. So nature needs half, of course, meaning that there's calls to set aside half of the earth as protected areas. That's kind of more a traditional conservation view, is it? Well, I would say for the most part, Yes. I mean, one of the really interesting things about these debates recently, I think, is that a lot of people who are advocating for a massive increase in the spatial coverage of protected areas, some of the people who make those arguments are themselves representatives of indigenous groups. And the people who author those papers are always very clear to, to make the case that indigenous lands and indigenous led conservation are a very big piece of what they're arguing for. And I acknowledge that's really important. So I think potentially you could argue that there's a there's a kind of people centered conservation leaning angle within that perspective. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of diversity of views even within people who are making those calls, but it would be oversimplistic to say, oh, you know, that's just all the sort of hardcore conservation, spatial planning scientists on the one hand, and then the people-centered conservationists on the other. And I think actually one of the things that I've been feeling quite uncomfortable about recently is I think you get this really undesirable and, and inappropriate dynamic where you've got white Western conservationists from different sides of this argument, basically going head to head about who represents the views of marginalized and indigenous people. One side is saying, oh, well, you know, indigenous people like our perspective. The other side is saying, no, 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 you know, people are being constantly evicted from national parks and it's terrible for people. And where are the people who are being affected in that debate? I mean, it's um, not to say that no one is ever present who represents those groups, but it doesn't feel like there's a, we know enough really about what do the people who have their livelihoods directly affected by these different kind of programs actually make of them. I think that that's a crucial area for future research and finding ways to, to hear those voices and give them power in these debates a lot of what I think around the framing of the Half Earth or Nature News Half project is not so much about maybe the plans that they have for conservation, but it's another example of a colonialist conservation sort of approach in a way, or it seems that way, because as we've been reading about decolonizing conservation, a lot of the critique of it is that it's Western-led, white-led plans for the whole world. And to me, Nature Needs Half is another one of those plans in a way. I don't know, as you said, there's probably some um, involvement of people from diverse countries and diverse regions, but it does seem like a massive plan that's affecting the whole world where most of biodiversity that we're trying to conserve is not in Western Europe or in the States. A lot of it is in the tropics. And so it does seem like another plan to manage the whole world. So I think that has really resonated with me since looking more into how Black Lives Matter and decolonizing conservation um, sort of comes into it in terms of conservation decision making. We're still doing our PhDs and a lot of what we think about is how 
our education has been and what do you think might need to change in conservation education? It's difficult to think about because I guess people do come into conservation from different avenues, but there is a broad pathway, at least we can say in Europe, of what you study at university, what sort of undergraduate degree you do. And I think we all felt that in our undergraduate degrees, there was a real lack of any social context or any sort of talk about the impacts of conservation works. And yeah, so do you think there's space for a lot of rethinking education for, for conservation specifically? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a sort of anecdote really, but I was an undergraduate in Cambridge doing natural sciences and learning about protected area design and, and you know systems to try and capture the full representation of different species and connectivity and all those sorts of topics. And my, my partner at the time was studying geography and she was learning about you know, the kind of colonial history of conservation, people and politics and power. And on the face of it, we were both learning about conservation in the global south. But what we were being taught was just utterly different. And I ended up going along to some of her lectures because we were talking about it at home and it just sounded really interesting. And to be honest, I was quite, you know, I didn't like the sound of what I was hearing from her. And I went to see the lectures and I thought, oh, actually, gosh, this is really, really interesting. So in a way, you know, I'm kind of here because I, by a bit of luck and a bit of, um, you know, kind of motivation on my part, I, I went out and sought that kind of different perspective in my undergraduate training. And I, I just think everybody should get it. It makes so much sense. And it isn't that those things aren't being taught. They are being taught, but they're being taught to geographers. They're being taught to anthropologists. But the people who get those courses are not learning anything about, you know, maybe why biodiversity matters to the global system and sort of the other side of the story, if you like. So I think it's finding those kind of integrated models of, of training that will be so, so important. But to get there, the people who kind of hold power in the conservation system need to truly embrace the idea that those different disciplines have something positive to contribute. So I think there is still quite a lot of suspicion that the people get their sort of minds polluted by a political ecology perspective and end up, you know, being on the wrong side of, of some sort of imaginary divide. And it is the case sometimes that people teaching those topics in anthropology or geography departments can be really very critical of conservation and perhaps don't see the whole picture. So I think just it's just going to take a lot of trust building and time to try and get those, you know, get those elements of training brought together. Do you think it needs to happen before the university level? So potentially more at school, just to get people thinking about integrated systems, I guess, more. To be honest, I mean, first of all, I don't know a huge amount about what happens in school these days. And secondly, I mean, I think if, if school age children are being taught about conservation at all, I'd be pretty happy. <laughs> you know, I think it's uh, my experience of even being taught biology at school was it was all about trophic webs oh, and mm -hmm. really boring yeah. stuff. And then we only got to university and found out that it was actually interesting. So, yeah, it would be ideal to be teaching those topics at school. And certainly in the UK system, you know, we have a very early ultra specialisation into A-levels, which I think is not really that helpful. And, you know, it would be nice to have a sort of more kind of baccalaureate style school lever, you know, where people have covered many more subjects in a more integrated way. Just looking back again at the um, anti-racism conversation happening, like I think history and the way we're taught history has a lot to answer for. And I think that permeates into everything that we do subsequently um, because we're learning only part of the history of certain peoples or it's a biased view. That's my two pence, I think. <laughs> Yeah, as you say, Tali, if you apply that to conservation, I think I've encountered many times in my career frustration on the part of, you know, academics or students or practitioners about the failure of a group of people to adopt or embrace a new approach to doing something or a new technology. And I think if you just look only at what's happened in the last year, you know, that might be a bit surprising and a bit frustrating. If you look at it in its historical context, 
people maybe have been on the receiving end of, you know, externally driven, often violent interventions for hundreds of years, it's hardly surprising that the sort of basic starting point is going to be one of suspicion and rejection of, oh, here comes yet another foreign led idea, you know, one in a long series. So I think, yeah, giving people that historical context, I mean, I think it would be great if everybody learning about conservation took a conservation history course up front, because it is so important. And I suppose there's a lot of talk about if we want to stop the biodiversity crisis, then we need some sort of transformative change. So that would point out that we need to teach kids from a much earlier age about ecosystems and our place in them. Yeah, and also just you know, coming back to this point about history, there's a really interesting sort of emerging field in the last few years of the environmental humanities. So, you know, I think often we tend to talk about social science and the assumption is that we're sort of pointing at a limited subset of social research disciplines. But actually, you know, the contribution that history has to make, that the arts have to make into conservation, you know, English, nature writing, all kinds of different perspectives are very, very valuable in this. It isn't just about bringing in, you know, economists, psychologists and geographers to the picture. And I mean, as conservationists, we like biodiversity. So diversity of views and disciplines should be really our thing. Good point. I think Chris has already sort of answered what his advice would be to early career researchers about trying to broaden your perspectives and try and consider different views in conservation. Yeah, we've been talking a bit about kind of structural changes that we would like to see, which would make it really kind of like automatic that people would get exposed to a wider range of views. But we're not there yet. So I suppose there are things that anyone can do, you know, reading around the discipline in a much broader sense, you know, trying to attend classes if you're still at university, you know, attending classes that are being taught under the sort of heading of different disciplines, but which are very relevant to conservation. And I think, you know, there are now also some really good reading lists, for example, emerging online, which are about decolonizing conservation, for example, because even in disciplines like political ecology, which I do some of my teaching in, which you know normatively are arguing in favor of different perspectives and challenging existing power structures and so on. When you actually look at the reading lists, it's still so dominated by the very same, you know, white Western elite institutions. So, you know, we've all got a massive amount of work to do in this respect. Now, you three are early career researchers and very interdisciplinary in your research. So what have you learned from your research so far about the future of conservation? What should it look like? Great question. What does the future look like? I'll just uh, gaze into my crystal ball. (laughs) I think it's an exciting time right now with everything that we've been talking about. One thing that I've noticed in the last, maybe since Extinction Rebellion came on the scene, sort of three or four years ago, there seems to be a lot of young people, social, on the street led movements that are calling for these sort of more systematic changes that we're talking about that are necessary if we are trying to stop biodiversity loss. And so I think looking at that and really trying to see how we can learn from that in trying to cause change is something that I'm, I think I am learning from. Yeah, I think it's interesting how there's all these societal movements and I think they're quite inspiring and we should all be looking to them, even though they're sort of non-formal and they're people-led. For me, I think I've just learned so much from looking into the decision sciences about our own cognitive biases and also from working with Maori about uh, my sort of cultural biases and the diversity of values that are present. And for me, I think progression in conservation is listening to people's voices and listening to people's values and using that information and sharing information, like having these important conversations and acknowledging people's values 
I think is a massive step. And then using them to like inform how we go about our conservation in practice, I think is key. And I think that's what the future could look like. But I've also had just like a personal journey about, yeah, my own biases and just from everything from the way I conduct meetings to the way I talk about science. Like Chris, what you were saying earlier, you catch yourself all the time. I've had so many facepalm moments where I've just said something that's just so, yeah, just biased. But recognizing the bias means that you're aware of it and you can move forward. So that's a that's a good first step. And probably many of us aren't even at that stage yet. So. Yeah, that's the first step. Recognize your own biases. Um, I guess for me, in terms of what I think the future of conservation or what I'd like it to look like, aside from, as sort of we've discussed quite a lot here, equal incorporation of local people in decision making. But one of the things that has struck home to me since um, the COVID pandemic is how, particularly like in, in Africa and Southern Africa, where I've been working, um, how reliant conservation is on tourism and how that's not a very sustainable model to base a lot of your funding on whether it's photographic or, or hunting. It's not enough to actually make meaningful livelihood contributions for most people, but it's also just really precarious and subject to such international whims and turbulence that it just isn't a very yeah, long-term or sustainable model. This is a point that I think is really important to recognise is that there are actions which you can take for conservation which are completely logical at that sort of micro scale, but that exist within a system which is itself completely illogical. So. You know, if you're trying to protect charismatic species in Botswana, it may well be that by far the best option is to have safari hunting and have Americans flying in and spending lots of money. Great. But when you look at that in the bigger picture, you know, the risks and the dependencies that that creates, the power dynamics that are involved in it, the carbon emissions of long haul travel, none of it makes any sense. And I think if you look across conservation funding more broadly, nature-based tourism and COVID just really sort of highlights a wider problem, which is, you know, so much of the money comes from corporate donations, which come from you know, large private companies, which themselves make all their money from doing harm to the environment. This is a really systemic challenge. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot with colleagues about what happens next post-COVID, depending on how things play out in the next few years, is can we encourage the conservation community to not just think about how to turn back on the tap of funding post-COVID, but actually to think about, you know, what's wrong with the system that we had and can we imagine a different one? So is, is there some way of, because otherwise the most effective conservation strategy to get back to where we were is to reboot the global economy as quickly as possible and go back to the same destructive practices that we have, because that will turn into tourism revenue and, and tax dollars and corporate donations that will allow us to get rangers back on the ground doing the things they were doing. So we need that on the ground conservation work to happen, but ideally not funded by a global system which is destructive because it's paradoxical. I do recognise that it's kind of easy to think these things and say these things if you're in the fortunate position that I am of being, you know, effectively a tenured academic with a, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have to worry about raising the money that's going to keep a whole team of conservation staff employed and, and active and doing the great work they're doing in the, in the immediate future. So I completely understand why people working in conservation agencies and organisations don't necessarily see things quite the same way. But I think it's part of our role as researchers and, and um, teachers is to sort of help people to kind of take a step back and think a little bit about the bigger picture and where this might be heading because it, you know, it just doesn't look like a system that's going to work really in the in the longer term. Sorry, I'm on my hobby horse now. It's such an interesting point, yeah. And I, it, yeah, that could be a whole other podcast, the future of conservation funding. We'll make this a weekly thing now, Chris. Please block out the day in your diary. <laughs> I guess one of the difficulties with conservation is that it's a crisis discipline, so sort of everyone just seems to be scrabbling to do as sort of best they can at the given time. 
and and so it's difficult to kind of look at the bigger picture sometimes. The challenge conservation has always had is that because it has this kind of crisis mentality is the idea that you know in a crisis you can do certain things that you probably wouldn't do if it wasn't a crisis like you know sort of make some shortcuts and sort of take some dramatic steps and actually if you're thinking about things like you know human rights and building long-term positive relationships with with people then you know maybe not treating it quite so much like a crisis and more like a long-term program might be a good idea. want to find out more on Chris's work and the survey that we've been talking about, go to futureconservation.org where you can read more about the debate and even take the survey yourself.